This is the 15-minute lunch break with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon here on Never Had It So Good, Gospel 107. And today, I want to talk to leaders. And in particular, I want to talk to leaders about the power of being still. Leadership is often characterized as a vocation for the driven, the passionate, and the powerful. So being still is seldom connected to the desire or the passion or the push that many assume is the nature of leadership. Being still, those words are anathema, a curse to so many leaders I know. They take the teams, the companies, the ministries, the churches, the organizations personally. And any failure, loss, or lack becomes their personal failure, loss, or lack. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing because leadership is a mature recognition of responsibility and accountability. But nevertheless, this attitude of all in must be balanced with times of being still. In the 46th Psalm, the 10th and 11th verse, there's a very familiar scripture to those that are in church or go to church pretty often. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. It was literally a call to Israel to calm down and to recognize that regardless of what they're going through, they're going through in covenant with a covenant God that cares for them and is concerned for them. And the knowledge that God is alive and God is able and God is mindful should be enough to keep them in the midst of trials and troubles. Stillness, calm, and fearlessness are virtues that many leaders long for. It is long for because of the current mischaracterization of effective leadership. That of the belief that the leader should always be active, which is the opposite of still. Or the leader ought to be apt, again, the opposite of calm. And supremely cautious because of the fact that they have people following them. Not necessarily the direct opposite of fearless, but close enough. It is assumed that if one is a leader and is out front in an enterprise, that a sense of confidence and resolute calm are automatic givens in one's arsenal. That's an assumption. The reality of it being that when one is out front, fear is exacerbated, even though it may be hidden behind a visage of courage. I heard it one time said that courage is when only you know that you're afraid. <laughs> And a sense of vulnerability, at least mentally, to the possibility of ridicule, criticism, blame. And you know what? That dreaded assessment of being thought of as a failure. They all become so much more real when you are in leadership. Take a coach, for example, of a relatively successful team. He never actually takes the field of play or steps onto the court. But the success of however many number of players on his team hangs on the wisdom of his singular leadership. It hangs on the words. It hangs on the intelligence. It hangs on the knowledge. It hangs on the wisdom that he has imparted into his players. I believe the bulk of the work of coaches is accomplished at and during practice. It's on the glamorous confines of that sweaty gymnasium or that weight room or that conditioning area. It's in the drudgery of drills and the repeated running of plays and the collectively and instructively analyzing game tape, those 
you know, monotonous activities. That's where coaching takes place. That's where you ask a player to do it over again. That's where you say, well, you give them little technical uh, instructions to say, well, lift your arms this way. Lift your legs this way. Let your foot land this way. Lift up your eyes. Follow the ball with your eyes. Though that's where coaching takes place. That's the doing of leadership. The recognizing of a player's strengths and weaknesses, the determination of where this or that player best fits on the team and honing in on their training regimen to accentuate those strengths while developing those weak areas. Most of the activity of our leadership is really behind the scenes. That's why it's a struggle for those in leadership that require to be in the spotlight all of the time. Outside of the glare of general public scrutiny, that's where the real work of leadership takes place as a corporate leader, as a ministry leader, as a nonprofit leader, as an organizational leader, as a leader at home. Your job is no different than the coach. You're given a team or you choose a team of near do wells and God expects you. The team expects you, the management expects you, the owners expect you uh, to use your God-given expertise to get them fit for service. If we take the home, children expect you to lead as a parent and to get them fit for life. So what does the doing of ministry or the running of a corporation or the leading of a family in leadership have to do with stillness, calm and fearlessness? Well, it's actually simpler than you think. Follow the line of thinking thus far. Good coaches do the work in practice, but on game day, they are leaders. In fact, they be leaders. Forget the grammar for this one. They don't panic in the heat of a game because they rest in the confidence that what they did in practice prepared them for what their players would see in the game. So real leaders prepare and practice. Those who get frustrated get frustrated with players who fail to follow the instructions laid out in practice. You know, parents get frustrated with children who act like they have no, we say, home training. For the most part, coaches either decide I was outcoached or my team was outplayed. In either scenario, the coach has to be a leader on game day. When the team is winning, the players look to the coach's wisdom as remembered from and identical to that given in practice. And when the team is losing, guess what? They still look to the coach's wisdom in game to make adjustments. But through it all, the coach has to lead. How are you coaching at home, dad? How are you coaching at home, mom? How are you coaching at home, um, um, surrogate parent? Stillness, calm, and fearlessness are about being. Coaches have to be coaches and lead in the game. It's about poise and it's about patience and it's about trust and what you did with the players in preparation. But if you had no time of preparation, you can't expect the players to perform. No preparation or poor preparation are the real markers of coaching inadequacy. Pastors and ministry leaders and parents have to be leaders in the game of life. Believers are looking to you for direction. Uh, Subordinates are looking to you for instruction. Children are looking for you for advice on needed adjustments that they have to make in their lives as they grow up. And they're expecting that you've gone through what they're going through. 
Leaders who do little or no preparation usually turn out to be pretty ineffective spiritual leaders as well. The scriptures tell all believers, leaders and followers alike, be still and know that I am God. However, we can't be still and know as leaders unless we're educated, exposed to and intimately experienced with God. This is why the call to leadership in ministry, in corporations, in the family is fraught with trials and tests. Because it is in those tests that we as leaders develop a sense of stillness. The tests have a purpose. The trials have a purpose. The tests are responsible for developing us the skills and the aptitude and the wisdom necessary to instruct those that are coming after us. Calm and fearlessness as we draw closer to God, depend on him and develop experience and trust in God, all areas in which we can help other believers. As a leader, you aren't exempt from trials and tests. It may just be that you experience yours before those who follow you and then have the opportunity to come out of your tests or trials far enough ahead of those who are following you to develop a healthy regard and perspective on why the test doesn't equal your reign. Lord, help us to learn how to be still and in so doing, show others that we know you. I want to leave you with five questions to consider as you walk away from this 15 minute lunch break about being still. Number one, have I been struggling with the concept of being still? Think about that. Is, have you struggled with that idea as a leader, as a parent, as a VP, as a director, as a CEO? Number two, have I gained enough experience of exiting out of the midst of tests and trials with a healthy understanding of the purpose behind the test so that I can coach someone else through the test? There's a mantra that I've developed this year, and it, and it simply says, some things I win, some things I learn. I will not use the language of losing in my life going forward. Some things I win, some things I learn. We've got to develop a mindset where the things that look like losing are really opportunities of learning that will allow me to win the next time around. Number three, have I ever really examined my own track record of overcoming tests or have I just been doing test avoidance? Let me challenge you with this. If you are the type of person that just lives a life of avoidance, you are not qualified and worthy to lead. Number four, have I dealt with my fears of failure? Have I dealt with my fears of failure? Have I fleshed that out? Have I unpacked those thoughts in my own mind? Have I faced my own fears? Have I put them before me? Can I list out all the things that I'm really fearful of? Number five, how well have I demonstrated to others that I have full trust and confidence in God to accomplish what he started in my life? Some of you listening to this broadcast, might not be believers, might not have faith in Jesus Christ, might not be Christians. So I'll word it this way. How well have I demonstrated to others that I have full confidence and trust in what I know and how I'm qualified to accomplish what I started to do in my life? I want to leave you with five touch points. Those were five questions I want you to consider, but now these are five touch points to take away from this discussion of being still. Number one, effective leadership is not always an active and physically taxing leadership. Take some time to be still.
Number two, players are the engine of the team, but the coach is the engineer. Number three, leadership begins with knowing what you are working with. Study your team. Find out what their strengths and what their weaknesses are. Number four, leadership continues with knowing yourself. Revisit your salvation story. Revisit the day that got you to where you are. Revisit the time when you were passionate about what you're doing. Get your passion back. And last and certainly not least, leadership is about the synthesis of self-knowledge with the accumulated intelligence on your team's assets and deficiencies. This is the 15-minute lunch break coming to a screeching halt. And I'll leave you with these fine words. Good leaders get the job done, but great leaders get it done without leaving themselves done as well. Learn to punctuate your work with times of just being still. Until next time, God bless. Signing out.